Well, God is providential over all events. He is sovereign over, over all events, but he's also providential in what he provides to his children, to those who are in his family. And if I were to be a topical preacher and not go verse by verse, if I were to look through the scriptures and try to find a verse that best suits the situation that we're in right now, I actually could not have picked a more perfect passage than what we're about to cover. Because if there is ever a time in our history, in our existence, where we understand that our life is spiritual warfare, now is that time. It has been made more clear than ever before, and it may become even more increasingly clear as we continue forward, depending upon how events unfold. But I think about our military. When we think about warfare, our minds naturally are drawn to our military when they engage in warfare. And we have seen that when they have gone to the Middle East, when they've gone into Iraq or when they've gone into Kuwait uh, prior to that. And in our history, we have seen a number of wars fought in order to protect the freedoms of the people upon this land. But we understand that it's not just anyone that can go out there and fight for this country. For those who are willing to fight for this country, you need to first go and enlist. And there's a set of requirements that you must be able to pass right off the bat physical requirements, character requirements, background checks, what have you. And even after you pass those requirements, then you have to go through training. And when you go through training, it's a long process of breaking down some of your bad habits and instilling a sense of discipline in you. There is rigorous physical training that is involved, the kind of physical training that the vast majority of all people all around the world will never know. And even if they pass the physical parts of that training, the question is, can they operate within a team? Are they able to take directions? Do they understand directions? Can they execute it? Can they do it under fire? Can they do it when the pressure is the highest? Because out on the battlefield, while I have never served in the military, I know that out on the battlefield, while there are a lot of events that are outside the control of those in the military, their greatest strength is each other. Their greatest strength is the unity of them and their fellow soldiers who are working together, that they're operating on the same sheet of music. They're following the same commands. They understand what needs to be done in whatever situations. They have a very clear chain of command that they follow. Because any break in that chain and command, any break from what they've been trained to do, any break from their willingness to follow orders, and it could be fatal for not only them, but the entire squad. So we understand in a physical sense when people are sent out into the field, when people are in our military and they are defending the freedoms of this country and other places, we understand that every action they take is critical towards the success of the overall mission. What we don't often understand is that the same kind of war wages every day for the Christian, except it's not a physical war, it is a spiritual war. 
It is a spiritual war beyond what you even recognize or believe. And as we get to this passage at the end of the book of Ephesians, this is the culmination of everything Paul has been teaching. It culminates in this final section about spiritual warfare, about the armor of God. And while this passage is a very popular passage to teach to kids, right? Go to Awana or VBS, children's Bible study, children's church. The armor of God is a very, very popular topic to teach kids. Kids that have grown up through youth group and have had exposure to the scriptures. If they have been exposed to nothing else aside from Jesus Christ himself, it's probably the armor of God. But what I want to help instill in each of your minds and each one of your hearts is that if we as adults do not grasp what is being taught in this section about spiritual warfare and the armor of God, then we have completely missed what God's will is for us. And not only that, but the enemy has successfully rendered you completely ineffective for warfare. And so as we go to this passage, it's going to be very, very important to not let familiarity breed contempt. It's going to be very important to not let your familiarity of your passage to turn off your mind to this passage and what it is teaching us. And for this morning, we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. It's a little bit different than what your bulletin says. And the title is The Armor of God, Part 1. And I would even add the armor of God, part one, colon, and call this the call to battle. The call to battle. And while this morning's text is really only four verses, we may actually spend more than one week on these four verses. It is that important. And so my purpose for you this morning as we go through this text is to prepare us for battle in the spiritual war so that Christ may be glorified in us is to prepare you for battle in the spiritual war so that Christ may be glorified in us. And that really has been the point of this letter. The central command has been to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called, with the ultimate goal of glorifying God and Jesus Christ in heaven through the power of the Spirit that works within us. And this morning, we're going to go through these four sections, and what we'll find is that Paul exhorts us to battle with four essential realities needed for Christian warfare. He's going to exhort us to battle with four essential realities needed for Christian warfare. And so we'll go ahead and read through the passage first, and then we'll go back and start to break this down in more detail. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And so I had mentioned that Paul is going to exhort us to battle with four essential realities needed for Christian warfare. And the first of those realities is found right in verse 10, which is the call to strength. The call to strength. 
As we look at verse 10, we start off with one word, and that is finally. Why does Paul say finally? Paul says finally because as we have been going through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to do a high-level overview of it in just a moment, but as we have gone through the book of Ephesians, we're reminded that the first three chapters were theological in its focus. Paul wanted us to understand theological realities, and he even prayed that we would understand them in greater depth, that the power of God would work through us. And then the last three chapters, from chapters 4 through chapter 6, were application. It's about how those realities apply to our life and how we are to conduct our lives, how we are to walk. And that central command in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. That is the call for us as Christians. And so Paul has been giving us not only theology, but all these ways in which we must walk. And in fact, each main section of Ephesians started off with a call to walk in a certain way. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But as we get here to this final section, Paul says finally because this is the culmination. This is the conclusion. This is the climax of all that he has been teaching us. And this section is not just a section that's split off from the rest. This is not a, oh, by the way, here's something else to consider. This is everything that I have taught you. Finally, this is what it leads to. It leads to spiritual warfare. And in fact, when we think about all that Paul has covered with us, Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, I created this table, and just to break it down, in chapter 1, from verses 3 to 14, we saw praise for God's spiritual blessings for believers. The Apostle Paul lifts up praise for all the spiritual blessings given unto believers. It included things like redemption, adoption, being chosen before the foundation of the world, receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit. It was loaded with all kinds of promises and blessings that are given to us as believers that should have us always looking forward to the future, always looking forward to that time that Jesus Christ will return, looking forward to those eternal realities. And in that same chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, we saw that Paul was lifting up a prayer for believers to grow in understanding and power. Because as he had opened up that chapter, he opens up with very deep theological truths without going into depth about each of them. And so his prayer for the Ephesian church and really for everyone is that all believers would understand these realities. And by understanding these realities, the power of God can work within you. And then from there, from chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul reminds us of God's grace in our life from rescuing us from death. Remember chapter 2, verse 1, started off with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, but God, being, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together again with Christ. And then following chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we have verses 11 to 22. And that is the reminder of Gentiles. And most of the believers in Ephesus were probably Gentile. It is the reminder that Gentiles have been brought into God's household. 
that while they have been alienated from the promises of God, while they have been ignorant of all the covenants given to God's people, which was Israel through the Old Testament, they have now been brought into God's household. And then from chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, is Paul's testimony, his own personal testimony of grace given to him, that he was given the opportunity and the honor to be able to proclaim this mystery of Gentiles as being fellow heirs. Imagine Paul, the most Jewish of Jewish people, proclaiming God's grace that he gets to proclaim the mystery of God, which is that Gentiles are now fellow heirs in the kingdom of God with believing Jews. And then he finishes out chapter 3 from verses 14 to 21 with a magnificent prayer that reaches up into the heavens. His prayers for believers ultimately to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be empowered to glorify God. And the power that comes by way of the Holy Spirit has been a major theme throughout this book. And then following those first three chapters, we get into the application sections. From chapter 4, verses, and that should be 1 to 16. Chapter 4, 1 to 16. Paul's call was for us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And over those first 16 verses, his emphasis is upon the unity of believers. As part of that passage, he tells us that God and Jesus Christ gave gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that each and every one of you in the church may be equipped to ministry to one another, to the building up of the church to mature manhood. That was found in that opening part of chapter 4. And then the second half of chapter 4 was the call to walk no longer like Gentiles. And the emphasis was upon sanctification. This idea that we are continuing to grow more and more into being like Christ. That we are laying aside the old and we are putting on the new. And we will take a look even at that passage again this morning. And then from chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, the call was to walk in love. And the emphasis was upon our purity, purity of speech, purity of actions. And then from verses 5, 8 through 14, we were called to walk as children of light. And the emphasis there was on us as children of light bearing fruit, but also helping to shine light upon this world. And we do that by bringing the gospel. And then most recently, we covered chapter 5, verse 15, all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, which was to walk in wisdom. And wisdom starts in the mind. Wisdom is in the mind. We are renewed by the mind. But the emphasis of this section is upon being spirit-led, spirit-led in our conduct, giving thanks, giving, singing psalms and songs and spiritual praise, making melody with our heart. But it's also in our relationships to one another. Because right in that section, you may remember, it led into the commandments for wives and husbands. Wives to submit to husbands and husbands to love their wives. And then for children to obey their parents and parents not to exasperate their children, not to provoke them to anger. And then there was the commandment between masters and slaves for slaves to honor their masters just as they honor and obey the Lord and for masters to treat them with dignity and respect, knowing that the Lord is watching over their actions as well. 
And that leads us into the conclusion, which is verses 10 through 20, which is the call to stand firm in the armor of God, and the emphasis is upon spiritual warfare. So hopefully this has provided a little bit of a reminder of what we have covered, and it's been a while. I started this over a year ago. So we're a year into it, and we've had several breaks along the way, but we are now finally getting into the final passage, and it is a most critical passage for us today. And so as we go back into Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, this finally at the start of verse 10 is to say that all this culminates in what Paul is about to tell us. And what is it that he tells us? He tells us to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in the Lord. And while you can't see it from the English, in the Greek, this verb is in the passive. Now, what do I mean by passive? Well, there's active and passive verbs. It's kind of like if you say, I hit the ball versus I was hit by the ball. When you say, I hit the ball, you're using hit in an active sense. That means the subject of the sentence, which is I, actually performed the action, I hit. But if you say, I was hit by the ball, you're now turning that verb into a passive. You are not the one that did the hitting. You are actually someone did the hitting of that ball into you. And so the point here is that be strong is passive. It means that you are not the ones who make yourself strong. What this is saying, and maybe it's better translated as be strengthened. Be strengthened. And the idea is that you are strengthened by something outside of you. But this is still a command. This is an imperative. The Apostle Paul is commanding us to be strengthened, but he doesn't leave us guessing what is the agent of that strengthening. He says to be strengthened in the Lord. To be strengthened in the Lord. And so that means that the source of the strength, the source of our power comes from the Lord Himself. And no doubt the Holy Spirit is highly active in that process. So we are to be strong in the Lord. And we find this kind of phrasing very common throughout the Scriptures, to be strong. This call to, to be strong, it's almost like a military command. And especially towards men, it is a call to manhood. It is a call to stand up and show how, what God has created you to be. And this world has perverted this whole idea of manhood greatly. This world makes manhood into a selfish endeavor for men to pursue whatever it is they want to pursue. To simply just be boss over other people. To throw around their power and to do whatever they want. But biblical manhood says to be strong, not by your own means, but in the Lord. That means there is a specific way in which you are strong. Now, let's take a look at a few examples from the Old Testament. You may remember the book of Joshua. Joshua is the one who takes over from Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament, those are the Mosaic books, from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. But Moses is not allowed to go into the Promised Land. He is punished by God. He, his life is taken right there before the Jordan River. And Joshua is appointed as his successor. And in the start of the book of Joshua, the Lord addresses Joshua. And three times in this passage, he calls Joshua to strength and courage. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, Be strong and courageous, 
and I'm not going to read through all this, but verse 7, he says again, only be strong and very courageous. But he goes on to say, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. So we see that this call from God to Joshua to be strong and courageous is tightly connected with Joshua understanding the will of God through the Scriptures. He not only tells them to be careful to do all that the law says, but even in verse 8, he says, the law shall not depart from your mouth, meaning you're always talking about it. You're always reciting it to yourself. It says you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Joshua was called to lead Israel into the promised land to bring about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that they would receive land. And that may sound like a simple enough endeavor, but what the Lord makes clear here is that the only way you're going to be successful is if you carefully do all that my word has said. And in fact, you not only carefully do all that my word has said, but you meditate on it day and night. For what purpose? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You remember that analogy that I started off with, the illustration that I started off with, with our military going out into battle. You know, there are experts on explosives. Very critical role and function, especially for people who are on the ground. Because especially when you're in the Middle East, explosives can be planted almost anywhere and they can take out entire groups, entire groups of vehicles at one time. And so those experts in explosives, while you would not question their manhood, they at the same time have to be very careful. They have to be alert. They have to look for all the signs that are out there in the field of where an explosive might be laid. And then when they spot where it might be laid, they have to go and carefully approach and make sure all the precautions are being taken to either avoid it or to set it off safely. So it's the same idea that we must be careful. We're, we must be careful to observe what the Bible tells us, what the Scriptures tell us. And what I'm trying to say is that spiritual warfare, you cannot engage in spiritual warfare unless you understand the Word of God. The Word of God must be what we study. It must be what we meditate upon. And then in verse 9, he repeats it again. Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This idea of being strong and courageous means that you fear only God. It means that you're man enough that you do not care what other men think. You do not care what other women think. You only care what God thinks. You only care what God's opinion and assessment is of you. And same thing for Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. David was the most beloved king of Israel. Solomon was his son. And when Solomon took over for David, look at what David says. Verse 2, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. David is challenging the manhood of Solomon. He's saying, be strong, show yourself a man. And how does Solomon do that? Verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. And when Solomon failed, it was because he turned away from what 
the word of God told him. In verse 4, he says, so that the Lord may carry out his promise. So the Lord may carry out his promise. The Lord has promised much good, but the Lord can only promise that good in cooperation with our obedience to him. Now, the Lord is sovereign over his victories. Don't get me wrong. And I know that if you or if I fail, that the Lord will make sure that there's going to be someone there who is going to succeed for him. But I would rather be in that place where I was used for his purposes than to be an obstacle for his purposes, to be useless for his purposes, to be someone who was a negative influence or helped lead someone astray from God. And just a couple more examples. In the New Testament, we have Timothy and we have the Corinthians exhorted. I'm going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and Paul's about to die, or at least he believes he's about to die. This letter that he writes to Timothy, he's intending this to be like his last will and testament. Think about it. If you're on your deathbed and you can only want write one letter, you're going to be very intentional about that letter, aren't you? You're going to be very intentional about who you write to, and you're going to be very intentional about what you write. And especially for a man with as much responsibility as Paul, he is going to provide the most important instructions that he can think of to the one who is to succeed him. And so he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's very similar to the command in Ephesians, to be strong in the Lord. He says here, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But do you see that being strong in the Lord means that for Timothy, he must devote himself, not only knowing the word, but be able to teach the word to others so that they can teach others. That is how a healthy church functions that we are absor absorbing the truths of God and that we are discipling others. We are discipling the next generation. And we're not only discipling the next generation, but we are equipping them to likewise disciple the generation after them. The most prosperous churches in a spiritual sense do exactly this. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 to 14 it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because this, if there's any couple of verses that encapsulates biblical manhood, these are the ones. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 to 14, we read, Be on the alert. And by the way, be on the alert, that's mental alertness. Often being a man is tied to being on the alert. And that's not hard to understand when you think about the battlefield. You don't send soldiers out into the battlefield when they're drunk. They need to be on the alert. So be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And yet, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. The most manly of Christian men are the ones who can act like men, be strong, stand firm in the faith, be alert, while making sure that everything they do is characterized by the love of God. But as we come back to Ephesians chapter 6, Verse 10, so we see, finally, be strong in the Lord, and it says, and in the strength of His might. So to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, this is not two different sources. So Paul is not saying you're going to draw strength from the Lord, and then you're also going to draw strength from the strength of His might. 
No, this is synonymous. To be strong in the Lord means to draw from the strength of His might, not yours. And in fact, let me emphasize this because in verse 10, we see be strong. We see the strength and we see His might. And in the Greek, that is three different words used to describe power. That is three distinct words in the Greek used to describe power. Why is that important? Because Paul is emphasizing the power of God in the most strongest, most powerful way that he possibly can. He couldn't emphasize this anymore. In fact, he has emphasized this similarly back in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me take you back there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. This was his prayer. I don't know if you remember this, but in verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He wants the eyes of our heart to be enlightened so that you will know. And remember, the war is a mental war. It starts in the mind. You perceive the spiritual war by what's in the mind. And so for you to be prepared for the war means that you must prepare your mind. And so Paul here is praying that you would know What is it that he wants you to know? Well, three things. One is the hope of his calling. Two is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's talking about the treasures that we have awaiting us. But the third one in verse 19, it says also, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power, of his power towards us who believe. By surpassing greatness, he is saying that you cannot measure how great this power is, this power of God towards us who believe. He wants us to know God's power. But he not only says that, but he says these are in accordance. This power, in other words, is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. He is using, he is stacking power terminology to emphasize the power of God, but not only just any power of God, but the power of God that is made available to us as believers. And how does he do that? He does that through his spirit and his word. You need this power to engage in the spiritual warfare. And verse 20 says about this power, he says, this is the power which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, and not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over the church, head over all things to the church, which is his body. This power that Paul is describing is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the same power that seated Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. And it is the same power that's going to put all things, not just all things in a physical sense, but even all spiritual things under subjection, under the feet of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that passage a little bit more, but this includes all the spiritual realm, all the angels, all the fallen angels, even Satan, everyone is put under the subjection of Jesus Christ. This is the power that is available to us. This is the power that Paul says we must be strengthened by. This is the power that's needed for this spiritual war. And so as I go back to Ephesians chapter 6, Verses 10 through 13, we see that once again, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. How how are you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might? We've been covering it all throughout Ephesians. 
It's to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Is to walk no longer as Gentiles, meaning that you are putting aside the old and you are putting on the new, which is created in the righteousness of God. It means that you are walking in love. It means that you're walking in wisdom. You're walking as children of light. And now it means that you're standing with the full armor of God, everything that you've been taught. And this letter is not fully covering everything that Paul has ever taught the Ephesians. Undoubtedly, this letter that Paul sent to Ephesus, this was building off on other things that he had taught them before. So we're dealing with what's in this letter, but also just the whole of Christian truth that we see in the Scriptures. And so that covers the first essential reality needed for Christian warfare, which is the call to strength. The second reality is the method of preparation. The method of preparation. So we have been called to strength. We have been called to be strengthened in the Lord. And now we go to section 2, which is the method of preparation, and that's right there at the start of verse 11. Verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God. Put on. Now, if you've read Ephesians enough, you know this is not the first time that Paul has used the words put on. He has used it once before back in chapter 4. Let me take you back to Ephesians chapter 4. And I know I'm throwing a lot of verses at you from Ephesians, but I want you to see how all of this is tying together into this final section. Because back in chapter 4, starting in verse 17, he says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. You see, when you were like the rest of the Gentiles, prior to knowing Christ, your walk was characterized by being darkened in your understanding, by the fertility of your mind. Once again, can I emphasize it again? The spiritual war requires mental engagement. This is not something that you just go in cruise control through. This is not something that you can just kind of saunter through without much thought or training. And then he goes on in verse 19, he talks about these Gentiles who have become callous spiritually, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And oh, are we not seeing this today? Are we not seeing this today? But look at the contrast. Look at what Paul tells the believers in Ephesus. And this is how we know that he has taught a lot more than what, just what's in this letter. Look at verse 20. He says, but, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Remember, you were saved. Our salvation, our walk is not about a bunch of set of rules. It's not about performance. It's not about just being a better person. It is about knowing the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus Christ himself, and that's why he says here, you did not learn Christ in this way. And he says, verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to know Christ is to know truth, and to know truth must come from the word of God. In verse 22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, and this is where we get to the sanctification, he says, in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, 
and the Greek grammar makes this clear that this is already happening, that from the time you knew Christ, you're already doing this. You're already laying aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And verse 23, look at this, that you be renewed in the spirit of your what? Mind. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In verse 24, this is where we see the put on. He says in verse 24, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You want to know what you are after you give your life to Jesus Christ? You are a child of God. You are a child of God. You are a new creation. And part of your reality is to put on this new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And just those words, truth and righteousness, you're going to find that when we get to the armor of God. Both of those concepts will be emphasized. And holiness underlines it all because holiness is to be set apart. It's to be set apart for God's purposes. So this entire letter, you can argue, is about holiness. It's about making you holy. And as we go back to chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God. The, the full armor, and let me just explain this, this word used for full armor, it's not used very often in the Bible, but when they did a lookup of classic Greek written up to this period of time, they found that in classic Greek literature outside the Bible, this word for full armor pertained to foot soldiers. It pertained to foot soldiers. That's why I'm bringing forth the military analogies. And you understand that when it comes to foot, foot soldiers, those are the people that are on the front line. Those are the people that have to be the most equipped for almost everything. Those are the people that need to be armed with the right kind of gear and protection to be able to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But they also must be able to protect themselves from any long-range projectiles, in this case, arrows. So foot soldiers needed to be the most heavily armored. You know, the people who were further back, the ones shooting the arrows, they didn't have to wear as much armor. The ones making the decisions who were even further back, they could wear even less. But your foot soldiers needed to be prepared for all kinds of possibilities. In fact, when we think about this full armor, I think about David and Goliath. You remember the story of David and Goliath? This is another one of these popular children's stories. And you remember they tried to put armor on him, right? I mean, I'm just showing you a couple of verses here. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 38 and 39. We read, Then Saul, he was the king at that time, Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. Now, why did he do this? He did this because he knew that the traditional wisdom is that if you're going to go into battle, you need that armor. Everyone understood that. And verse 39, David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk. And the idea that he tried to walk means that he struggled. This armor was so heavy. It was so clunky. But he had not tested them, and so David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David then took them off. Now, it might sound a little weird that I'm going to this as an example. Well, this is an example for this reason. 
Because the armor of God, the full armor of God that you're being commanded to put on is not physical armor. It's spiritual armor. And I could even argue that in the case of David, that while he would not put on the physical armor, and while under most circumstances that might be a foolish thing to do, on the other hand, it was so heavy that it wasn't even practical for him to fight. It wasn't even practical for him to do what he does best. But really, the main argument I would make out of here is that when we look at David, he may have rejected the physical armor. However, it was his spiritual condition that delivered him through this situation. You see, David was a man who was upright. Up to this point, he had even been described as a man after God's own heart. When Samuel went to go select the next king after Saul, David was described as a man after God's own heart. So he was upright. And not only that, he trusted in the Lord. He wasn't afraid by some giant Philistine. He said, how dare does this Philistine mock the living God? And not only that, but he knew the Lord's promises for Israel and those who trusted in the Lord. So in many ways, when you think about the spiritual armor of God that we're going to read about in Ephesians, David in this battle was fully equipped with that spiritual armor. He was upright. He knew the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He knew the Lord's promises. And he was bold in doing what he knew the Lord would enable him to do. And that brings us to the end of the second section, which, was the, which is the method of preparation. The method of preparation. That first section was the call to strength. The second is the method of preparation. We'll take a look at part of the third, and I'll probably have to end it. But as we get into the third section, we look at verse 11. Once again, it says, put on the full armor of God. And then we see, so that... So that is the purpose whenever you see those words right after the command. It gives the purpose of the command. That's one of the principles of interpretation that you can follow when you look at the scriptures. If you see a command and you see the word so that, the so that explains why the command is important. So we see the purpose. It says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm. You will be able to stand firm firm. And as we look at some other scriptures, I'm just going to give you some examples of standing firm. We just saw this, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. So once again, this is tied into being strengthened by the Lord. But to stand firm, and this idea of stand firm, it's a defensive posture. It's this idea that you're immovable. It's like a tree whose roots are, are rooted deep into the earth. It's like Psalm 1 when it talks about the righteous man. It's like a, a tree near a stream with its roots dug deep into the earth. It is immovable. It is unshakable. So stand firm is not as much of an offensive posture as much as it is a defensive posture. And it is repeated over and over and over again in the scriptures. I'm just going to give you a few examples. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, but Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And in the book of Galatians, Paul was addressing false gospels. 
false gospels were being given to the Galatians and they were starting to believe those false gospels. And he's trying to tell them to stand firm in the true gospel, to stand firm in Christ. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery because previously we were slaves to sin. sin. But now we have been made free in Christ Jesus. And Philippians 1.27, and this is going to be very familiar in comparison to what we've been reading in Ephesians. Ephesians says, conduct your, you know, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Philippians 1.27 says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And how do you do that? He says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. The idea is that you are standing firm together with the body of Christ. This is not just addressed to an individual. This is addressed to an entire church, that together they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul says this, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Paul is saying that we will be encouraged if we know that you are standing firm in the Lord. You are not being shaken from your belief. You're not being shaken from your trust in the gospel and your hope in the future. And even the apostle Peter, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 8 and 9, and then verse 12, he says, Be of sober spirit, and there you have it again, sobriety. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Being ready for battle means that mentally you're always prepared. Mentally you're always engaged. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. Resist the devil firm in your faith. And we're going to see a similar message here in the armor of God. Resist him firm in your faith. And even at the end of verse 12, as he is closing off the letter, he says, through Savannah, our faithful brother, because that's who the letter was written by, Peter dictated to Salvanus. says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I don't know if you've ever thought of your Christian faith as one that you need to constantly stand firm in. Because we're constantly under attack. Our faith is constantly under attack. And we often make the mistake of thinking that our enemies are of the flesh. Our enemies are people. We might think politically that our enemies are of a certain party. Or we might think in terms of the world, our enemies are people that don't believe in God. Our enemies are educational institutions that denounce the truth of God. And certainly those are attacks, but we must recognize that at the source of it, it is a spiritual war first and foremost. Because even the Apostle Paul, the one who is writing this letter of Ephesians, he persecuted the church before Jesus Christ blinded him and gave him a new heart. While he was a physical persecutor of the church, while he was dragging people off, possibly to their deaths, Paul spiritually needed a new heart. He knew the Old Testament left and right, inside and out. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but he didn't know Christ. This is why we share the gospel. That is why we 
are always prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within us. That's 1 Peter 3, verses 15 through 18, I believe. We must always be prepared to share the gospel because even the hardest of hearts in a human sense can be converted into being believers if you just share the gospel. And that is how you engage in the spiritual war. You don't condemn people directly. What you do is you seek to address their spiritual need. You continue to be an example of Christ. You continue to be a testimony of the world. And as many people out in the world are criticizing churches that are meeting, criticizing Grace Community Church and saying that those people who are meeting, they are being a bad witness to the community. I would argue that you're being a bad witness if you don't meet. And I understand that there are some people that need to stay at home for health reasons, health concerns. I'm not criticizing that. But what I'm saying is this, that if you start to make decisions for the church based upon what people, based upon what people who are not in the church want, then you're in trouble. The best testimony you can make to the world is to show them that we do not operate by the rules of the world. We operate by the rules of Christ. We answer to a higher authority. We have a higher law. And we will not sacrifice our need to be able to come together and worship our Lord Jesus Christ week after week. This is what we come together for. And that is the best testimony you can give to the world, even if they don't realize it. Because when they start to realize that this world does not provide them answers, when they realize maybe towards the end of their life that they have not lived up to the purpose that has been given to them, but they are unsure of what that purpose was, when they start to seek for answers, they need to seek answers from people who they know are not living according to the world. They need to find people that they know have a greater hope that transcends all the difficulties that are happening all around us. We need to be a people that no matter what's going on, even as the state continues to persecute churches and target them and prevent them from meeting, even as we have political parties that are burning up uh, Bibles, political movements that are burning up Bibles and political parties that are trying to further silence further restrict religious liberties, further trying to silence the voice of those who believe in the Bible. We can firmly trust in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things. And just like last week when we heard about the story of Elijah, when he went to Mount Horeb to confront God, Elijah just had to be reminded that God is in complete control. Even at a time in Israel when things were continuing to get worse, and worse, and worse, and worse. God was still in control, and ultimately He would bring about His good because He needed to be able to demonstrate to us that there is no way on our own that we would ever turn to God on our own and worship Him, that we needed a Savior to come for us, to be able to die on the cross for us, to to, to be able to render the law of Moses ineffective for us, that our sins could be forgiven. And if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you right now that today is the day of salvation, that we gather together to worship a holy God, 
because we understand that that holy God sent a holy son to be able to die on the cross. He was perfect in all his ways. He was absolutely holy. He was perfectly righteous. He did not deserve the punishment that he received. And when he went to the cross, he bore the greatest injustice in all the history of mankind, past, present, and future. In a world that is crying out about injustice, there is no greater injustice than Jesus Christ on the cross. And yet the greatest injustice of Jesus Christ on the cross was also the greatest act of love and mercy and grace from God the Father towards you, the sinner. Because while it was impossible for you to be able to stand before a holy God and be deemed righteous and innocent, it is impossible you will be judged by God for your sins. Even if you do not know the word of God, your conscience is going to bear witness against you. Your sinful nature will bear witness against you. Even if you have not committed crimes externally, your heart is going to bear witness against you. If you've ever been angry at someone, if you ever looked at something that you were not supposed to look at, if you have ever made promises that you did not keep, if you ever bore false testimony, if you have even, even coveted something that did not belong to you, you will be condemned. And that describes all of us except for Jesus Christ himself. And so that price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross was specifically for those who would confess him as Lord and Savior. And so if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord, all it takes for you is to confess that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross in order to pay for your sins, and that he, and only he, only he is the way, only him is the truth, only him is the way to the Father, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to heaven, and only if you confess that, only if you turn from your sins and are committed to following after Christ, only then can that faith lead to your salvation. It is not by our works. It is by faith alone and is by the grace of God. Turn to Christ and be saved. And for the rest of us, while I did not get to finish this passage this morning, hopefully this has been a good wake-up call for you or a good reminder, or a good strengthener, that this is not merely just something that we teach our children. This is a reminder to us that in our lives, what's most important is the spiritual war. We can get caught up in all kinds of worldly activities, worldly conflicts. But what you must remember is that Satan is crafty. Satan is clever. Satan is seeking to take your attention off of God and to put your attention upon yourself and upon worldly matters that in the end do not matter. Make sure that you are aware of that spiritual war and the way you start is by devoting yourself in the mind to be prepared for that war, to seek to be transformed by the wisdom of God's word. That is how we glorify God in our walk. Let us pray.